I read comics, show number 40. goodness, it has been a while. How are you? It's been a long time. Good to see you. I'm okay. I'm, I'm still getting over this whatever I had, but I'm, I'm better than I was. And uh, I got a bunch of stuff that I want to review now. And let me tell you, um, there was some good crack this time around. So I want to just jump right in with a Legion thing that I had forgotten to mention from before. This is from the Legion Archives Volume 2. And there were a number of really good Saturn Girl stories in here that I talked about before. But this is just one little scene from um, Adventure Comics number 307. And this was uh, a story that introduced Element Lad. So when he first showed up, um, he was called uh, the Mystery Superhero. So find out the secret power of the Mystery Superhero. So he showed up and he said he had a secret power, but he didn't want to tell them what it was. It's a fairly complicated plot, but this is the good part. Um, They have a bunch of Legion applicants who show up, and he's one of them. And uh, he tells them his real name, John Ara. And Cosmic Boy says, what is your power? And he says, I'm sorry, but it must remain secret. That's why I wear a question mark on my costume. He is, in fact, wearing his usual costume. It just has a big question mark instead of the E on the front. So he says, I'll demonstrate my power to one of you if that one promises never to reveal it. So in the next panel, Cosmic Boy confers with Saturn Girl, the leader. Cosmic Boy says, this is unheard of. What do you think, Saturn Girl? And she says, he must have some reason for his strange request. Let him demonstrate his power to me in a locked room. I won't reveal it, but can recommend whether or not to accept him. Next panel. The caption says, Later, when Saturn Girl and Jan Ara emerge, Saturn Girl, who has a huge shit-eating grin on her face, says, His superpower is terrific indeed. I can't reveal it, but I strongly recommend we accept him. And everybody agrees with her. And (laughs) they had to know what they were doing with a scene like that. But I just think it is so funny that Saturn Girl gets to go in there and test his, you know, super boffing power or whatever it was. But that was just awesome. I, I just love that panel. He shows his special power to her in a locked room. His special purpose. Yay, that's so funny. Okay, so um, let me talk about something new. And this is a book that I picked up at the um, Star Trek Sacramento Con, the 40th anniversary thing that I went to a couple weeks ago. And uh, it was really fun, and I had a great time with my friend JK. And if you want to hear about it, you can go listen to the the podcasts that we did over at Look at His Butt. In fact, we got Shatner to say, Look at His Butt, which was pretty cool. So I had heard about this particular uh, manga, Star Trek, the manga, which is called Shinsei Shinsei. Um, in Japanese, and I got the uh, one of the special super-duper commemorative covers, exclusive limited edition cover, one of two. All right. They just had a pile of them on the table, and I wanted to get it. Um, it's published by Tokyo Pop, and I had read about this. In fact, I might have even mentioned it on the show a long time ago. Um, so it's finally out, and they said that they had been, uh, the company that was selling them, not Tokyo Pop, but one of the distributors, um, said they had just been, they couldn't keep them in stock. They were selling so many of them, especially at the Las Vegas convention, which was huge. There were like 30,000 people. They sold out. And they didn't have that many at the Sacramento Con, so I was really happy to get one. So, um, you know, it, it's manga. It's Star Trek manga. There are, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five different stories in here by five different writers uh, and illustrated by five different artists. And um, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's uneven, as you would expect from five different pairings of artists and writers. And I don't know any of the writers or any of the artists, so I don't know if they normally work together or whether it was the writer just writing an, a story and it being assigned to an artist. Um, I haven't done a whole lot of research on this. I was just kind of going on my impressions of it. Uh, so the writers, interestingly enough, I think are all uh, 
sounds like Americans or English native English speakers, and the artists I think are almost all um, Japanese, with one exception, Gregory Giovanni Johnson. So the art ranges from um, fairly, I don't want to say stereotypically, but very familiar looking um, Japanese style manga to, to other art that's more, I, I would say, um, cartoony in a way that we're used to in superhero comic books. And the plots are okay. You know, the first one is uh, a story about them meeting a, um, an alien intelligence, and uh, it turns out in the end that this female, of course, that they meet um, eventually becomes the Borg Queen. Oops, a spoiler, sorry. I knew you were all just sitting on the edge of your seats waiting to hear that. Um, and, and you know, all right, maybe that works. I, I don't know. I didn't really see any need to tie it up there. Um, one thing I did notice about almost all these stories is that there's an awful lot of violence in it, like violent violence where people actually get killed and there's blood all over the place, which, you know, didn't really happen in the original series. Oh, I'm sorry I didn't mention this, but this is Star Trek TOS, original series manga, not Next Generation. Five stories about the, the original series. Um, so if you remember in the original series, and you should be watching it because it's on what used to be UPN with the remastered editions with all the cool digital special effects. Um, there wasn't a lot of, of blood and gore. You know, people got killed or vaporized infrequently. Um, and there was sure a lot of fist fights with Kirk getting to punch out other people, but there wasn't a lot of blood and guts. And there's a fair amount of blood and guts in here, which is just, to me, a little bit um, weird in the context of TOS, because I'm just not expecting it. So that's one story. Uh, there's another story, story number two, uh, features a plot that I think was stolen from Next Generation, where they go to a planet and it turns out the whole civilization on the planet was being imagined by this one guy um, for his own purposes. I'm pretty sure that was a TNG episode. Um, this particular story uh, has some really weird art, and this is the one that has the art by Gregory Giovanni Johnson, story by Joshua Ortega, and the story's called Anything But Alone. And the way that the characters are drawn in here, especially Kirk and Spock, Kirk is Captain Smirky McSmirk. He has a smirk on his face in every single panel, no matter what is happening. He's got that, like, kind of half-grin and half-cocked eyebrow going on. And there's one panel that I scanned, which I'm going to put on the blog, where uh, it's a, a, a panel of Spock and Kirk sort of together, but in separate panels. And they both have the smirks on their faces, like slashy much. So I was getting a little tired of Kirk smirking all over the place. Um, but we did get to see a panel of his butt, which I also scanned. So that was good, because we always want to look at his butt. Um, there's another story where uh, they go to a planet, and um, there's people who aren't dead. They're in sarcophagi, and they bring them on the ship. Yeah, that was smart. And it turns out that they're uh, these beings, and they want to um, cause the crew to fight with each other, and it's the men against the women. <sighs> and um, remarkably, in this story, the saucer separates from the rest of the ship, which it wasn't really able to do in TOS-era starships, so I'm not quite sure how they manage that without the ship, like, ripping in half. And then they end up killing each other, and then everything's okay. Um, the next story is called Oban. Oh, I'm sorry, this also has a non, uh, as far as I can tell, Japanese artist, Michael Shelfer. And um, this is, I think, close to a TNG plot where they have to transport an animal from one place to another and the animal ends up being a, a booby trap. Or maybe it's like a lawn of Troyes, I'm not quite sure. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, and then it blows up at the end. It blows up really good, real good. In fact, it's a whole page of it blown up. Um, the last story, I think, is actually the best. And I was, you know, by the time I got to the fifth story, I was getting a little tired of this, um, just because the stories are not that compelling, and they really didn't feel like Star Trek to me. The characters aren't really acting like you would expect them to. Oh, except one thing. Oh, this is brilliant. This really is um, the way I think Star Trek should be. In this story with the... Um, uh, the males versus the females on the ship. Um, Kirk has a date which gets interrupted 
by all of this, and he goes to this visiting doctor's quarters, and clearly they're about to fuck, and they get interrupted. And um, so at the end of the story, as they're doing the little wrap-up, which, as you remember in the show, is like the tag right before the credits. So they're all saying, you know, the usual things, and Bones is saying, oh, maybe our emotions will kill us in the end, and blah, 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 blah. Then Kirk wraps it up by going, and now, if you'll excuse me, I believe Dr. Pearson is waiting for me in the Arboretum. (laughs) And everybody kind of looks at him like, okay, go and get some, Jim. We know you haven't gotten laid for three days. Better go do it now. So at least that was true to the show. Now, I have to say, um, there's another thing in here which is not true to the show, in that um, in the story where they're supposed to be delivering this little creature from one planet to another, they all go down to the planet and they leave Chekhov in charge of the ship. This doesn't happen. Chekhov is an ensign. He doesn't get promoted that quick. And he clearly is an ensign in this story because Kirk says something like, oh, he says it right here as he's doing his captain's log. I have every faith in my ensign as future captain material. Why is Chekhov in charge when Uhura is sitting in her chair right there? No, that doesn't happen. You don't leave Chekhov in charge of the ship. Chekhov screams like a little girl whenever anything bad happens. And he's just too pig-headed to be able to run a ship. I'm sorry, you don't leave Chekhov in charge. You know, that aspect of Chekhov, the annoyance factor, and he has a Davy Jones haircut, you know, was such that um, in a fanfic story that I helped write, I specifically created um, an agony booth. Remember the agony booth from the Mirror Mirror episodes where you would put people in it and it would sort of shock them or whatever? And in that episode, Chekhov, in fact, does go in the Agony Booth. So in my story, the Agony Booth was like a carnival attraction, and you would put in a quarter for 15 minutes, and um, Chekhov got put in it, and McCoy took up a collection so that everybody could keep putting quarters in and have him get tortured. So that was a good thing. Um, Okay, anyway, the last story here is called Orphans. Um, Story by Rob Tokar, and the art is by E.J. Sue. And um, the art for this is, is okay. It's probably a little more manga-like than some of the others. Um, And I have to say, in almost all of these, the sound effects are in Japanese, which is very manga-like. I didn't go through the trouble of translating them, but I'm sure they're correct. Um, And in this story, uh, the Enterprise is escorting uh, a trader ship from one place to another, and they get attacked by these... Well, they're Transformers, I would say. They get attacked by, by giant Transformers floating in space. Um, and it turns out that the people controlling the Transformers are, in fact, children. And Kirk's job is to um, stop them from being bad, which he does. And everybody lives happily ever after. Now, things that made this cool are that Kirk really acts like Kirk. He is very captainly and gives orders and figures out things in tough situations. And, And I really appreciated that he was most like his character on the TV show. And then... Um, the other really cool thing that happens is they're fighting these Transformers, and the head Transformer has a sword and jams it through the view screen of the bridge. And they're all just sitting there with this giant sword coming through the view screen of the bridge. It's like 50 feet long. And, you know, there's a force field to keep the hull breach from losing on their oxygen. But that's really cool! And that, to me, seemed very true to the spirit of the original show. Um, a giant sword coming through the bridge. Yeah, go for it. So um, Kirk manages to talk this kid uh, that they've captured out of being bad and into um, leading his other Transformers into to being cooperative members of society. And it does get a little talky, and it's kind of felt like they were putting Picard's words in Kirk's mouth. But in general, I thought this was actually a really good story. So I was glad that they ended it that way. And they did tie a little to um, things that happened in the Trek universe in the future, Kirk mentions he had this relationship with Carol Marcus, and he he mentions the son that he's not sure he had or maybe does know about, um, which is big foreshadowing for the movies. Um, so that was really good. So I, I like that story a lot, and I'm glad they put it last. It definitely was the best for last. So if you're a Trek fan, um, you might want to pick this up. I think it was like, I don't know, 10 bucks or something. It wasn't that expensive. And it's kind of a, a cool collector's item to have, I would say. Um... It's not going to totally rock your world, I don't think. And um, it's in black and white, which is also a little bit disappointing. I'd love to see it more in color. And, you know, maybe that's part of it for me is that I tend to think of 
anything connected with the original series in you know those bright 60s technicolor uh, shades, the primary colors that you always saw on the bridge and in the costumes, and seeing it all in black and white is, is just a little odd for me. So that's Star Trek the manga. Um, let me talk about one more thing before I take a break and take a drink to keep my voice going. This is a book that I've been meaning to review for like, okay, when was July? It was a long time ago. It's November now. And when I was at Comic-Con, right before we left, Ginger and I were walking around, and we were just about to leave, and there was one table there right by the exit, and the two guys who were at that table were Matt Salady, who does the Homeless Channel comic that I talked about before that I liked, and the other guy was Chris Wisnia. And we were kind of looking at his stuff, and I noticed that he had these really great big illustrations of big monsters, Kirby-style monsters. And I was admiring them, and I was saying, hey, that is really cool. I love that. And we started talking about Kirby, and he showed me this book, and and I told him about the podcast, and I said, you know, would you consider giving me one, and I'll review it. And he kind of said, are you sure you're going to review it? You're not just going to take this, are you? And I said, no, 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 I'm going to review it, honestly. So I am. I'm reviewing it. It's a little bit late, but I am reviewing it, and I'm really sorry it took me so long. Um, This, so let me back up a second. Chris Wisnia puts out um, a magazine called Tabloya, and Tabloya is is cool and funny, and he had a character in there called Doris Danger, and he eventually put out this whole book of Doris Danger, and there's another book as well. Um, So this book is called Doris Danger Seeks, Where Giant Monsters Creep and Stomp. Um, so there are five shocking Doris Danger adventures inked by Dick Ayers, and Dick Ayers was the guy who inked a lot of the Kirby stuff when he was doing his monsters. Um, and there are also um, some really great illustrations, uh, I guess, um, not covers, but title pages for stories that aren't in here. And then at the end, the coolest thing is that he managed to get all these other artists to do um, giant monster pages very much in the style of Kirby. And here's a list of the people who he managed to get art from. And this is a great list. Mike Allred, Gene Colan, Thomas Yates, Steve Rude, John Severin, Erwin Hasten, Bill Sinkowitz, the Hernandez brothers, all three of them, uh, Ryan Souk, Ramona Fraden, Tony Millionaire, Sam Keith, and Mike Mignola. So that's a really impressive lineup, and the illustrations are really, really good. If you ever wanted to see that kind of giant monster stuff as interpreted by all these wildly different art styles, it's really, really cool. So, um, the Doris Danger stories are hilarious. I mean, this stuff is clearly a very loving tribute to the kind of stuff that Kirby was doing when he did all those giant monster things. And the art that, that Chris Wisnia does is, is pretty true to the way Kirby was illustrating back then. Um, and the, the monsters all have hilariously funny names. And all of the text is written in that completely breathless style that, you know, was very popular with these and very Stan Lee-ish. And every sentence ends with an exclamation point. Every single one. Um, So, you know, here's a cover page. It says, How much mayhem can you bear at the hand of Pua-Pua-Pua, the fiend who reaches into the sky? And everybody says his name like that, the fiend who reaches into the sky. The next one is, Deep Sea Divers, Don't Dare Disturb, Dabadoo. Um, the next one is, It Was So Stupid to Confront Sphinx Tor. And uh, this this monster, very Kirby-esque monster, is by the Sphinx and the pyramids. And one guy says, Our camels and oxen are no match for Sphinx Tor. And another guy says, the prophets revealed the truth. It was. It has returned to ride the Sphinx like a giant cowboy. <laughs> That's exactly what he's doing. And it just goes on. There's another one called Pika Pika, who's a peeping Tom monster. There's another one called Spla. He's a, a thing who burst from an exploding volcano. That's a whole story. Um, there's a couple others in here that were just great. There's one called uh, Crackapoo, <laughs> which is another great story. Um, another one called Abla, the creature who defied all science by punching. These stories are all in black and white, by the way. I I will say glorious black and white because I I think the art really takes advantage of that incredible high contrast stuff 
it is just really, really good. So if you're a fan of this stuff, I highly encourage you to to buy When Dora's Danger Seeks, Where Giant Monsters Creep and Stomp, because it is really good and really funny, and you'll find lots and lots of jokes every time you read it over. Um, there's one in here uh, called Fugabla, the Eiffel Terror, right? Get it? Eiffel Terror. And uh, the very name made all Paris tremble. And it takes place in Paris, and all the French people are saying things in French, but they're all saying completely nonsensical things. One guy says, Mon Dieu! And another guy says, J'aime les salles de bain! And another one says, Vive la France! And another one says, Avec! Which means with. So this goes on through the whole story. Whenever the French people talk, they say things like, um, Quel heure est-il? And another one says, Frère Jacques! So, I don't know, I find this kind of humor very, very, very funny. So I love this. I think it's great. And Chris, thank you so much for giving me a copy. Now, I also wanted to say, um, Chris has another thing out right now called Dr. DeBunko. And this is another one of those cases where two of my interests cross over and it makes me so happy. So he's written um, a series of small stories and they originally were in Tabloia, but now he's collected them. Um, and Dr. DeBunko is is a skeptical superhero, sort of. And he, he goes through um, debunking all these urban myths and stories that people tell. I just ordered it. I don't have it yet, so I haven't read it, but I'm very excited about it. And Chris did a great, great interview over on Skepticality, um, which is now the official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. So they did, um, Derek and Swoopy did a much better interview with Chris than I probably would do. So I encourage you to go over and listen to the interview with Chris because it's really, really good. He talks about um, Dr. DeBunko a lot and where his inspiration came from. He talks about Tabloia and the history of Tabloia. And it's a really good, fun interview. So I I really, um, if you're interested, I really recommend you go over there. And you can buy all of Chris's stuff from his website at tabloia.com. And it's all really cheap. Uh, it's great value for the money. Now, I wanted to mention one other thing. When I was talking to Chris, I told him that there was a website that was specifically devoted to Kirby monsters, and it's called Monster Blog, and I'll put the link in for it. And um, the guy, I think it's just one guy who's running it, had gotten all these covers of all these great um, Kirby monster magazines and put them in there, and oh, they're just in such glorious color, just to look at them is wonderful, and he had some great commentary on them, but I think that, that the site hasn't hasn't been updated for a really long time, I don't even know, a couple of years, so I'm kind of sad that that hasn't been current, but you know, people have lives, and they get sick and stuff. But um, Monster Blog is great. It's really got a, a ton of fun, fun, fun Kirby Monster stuff. And you get to see the art in all its beautiful color glory. So if you're interested in that sort of stuff, I would recommend that. And I hope you got a chance to look at that stuff, Chris, because um, I think you would appreciate it. So uh, let's take a quick musical break and then come back in a minute and talk about John Romita Sr. I realize this is actually less of a review and um, more of a reason to talk about why I like John Romita so much. <laughs> the book that sparked this off was a gift. It's um, one of the Marvel Visionaries collections about John Romita Sr., which came out, I think, in 2005. This is a hardcover. <clears throat> and this was uh, given to me as a gift by Tony. So thanks, Tony. What a great thing. I don't have any of the other Marvel Visionaries books. This is the first one I've gotten, and I'm really, really happy that this is the first one I've gotten. And uh, I had forgotten how influential Ramita's art was on me when I was reading these comics as a kid. And first, you know, these Marvel Visionary things are great, and I think the selection of material that goes into them is excellent. Um, this one in particular has so many comics that I have in my collection and I remember reading um, specifically some of the Daredevil stuff and uh, 
you know, like uh, the early Daredevil, like 16, 17, when Stanley was still writing them. Um, and then the, the whole Spider-Man arc with the Green Goblin and uh, my favorite, which was the first appearance of Mary Jane when uh, John was drawing her. And then uh, some great Fantastic Four stuff when uh, Johnny was going with, going with, dating, seeing, sleeping with. Um, Crystal from the Inhumans, and and I remember that storyline really, really well. So those things are all just great, and and I remember them so vividly, and I remember certain scenes in here. So it was just so good to see them in a book, you know, as always, in something that you're not afraid to touch and open and and turn the pages of. And, you know, pretty good job on the coloring here. Of course, it could always be better. Um, I could see places where they didn't do a great job and, you know, some mistakes but what are you going to do? Um, so in looking through this, I, I, I think the panel where we see Mary Jane for the first time is probably one of my favorite comics panels ever, just because it was the build-up to a really long storyline um, about what Mary Jane was going to be like because Peter Parker didn't really know if she was going to be a, a dog or whether she was going to be great. And, you know, she's this daughter of the friend of his aunt, and he's like, oh, do I have to meet her? Do I have to meet her? And then he's sitting there mooning over Gwen again. And uh, MJ shows up, and in this panel where we see her, she's just amazing. She's just so cool. And the first words out of her mouth, face it, tiger, you just hit the jackpot, which is so her. So I I just love it. And um, one thing I noticed as I was looking through this book was that I really, really liked the way Ramita draws women. And he had a very specific style of woman that he liked to draw. And I happen to like that, that body type that he drew. Uh, Of course, they have really nice faces. Um, but they stand like real people, which is really good. They don't have giant inflatable tits, which is really nice. They tend to have kind of smallish waists, but they have nice big hips and big butts and and shapely legs, you know, not stick legs. And they just, I think they look really, really good. They look like um, women that exist, and um, especially in the case of Mary Jane, a, a woman that you would look at her and you would go, yeah, she's cool, I'd like to, you know be her friend or date her or whatever. I just think she's she's really neat. Um, so I, I was so happy to, to see. And then in, in the subsequent story, there's some of her uh, <laughs> Stan Lee trademark dialogue where Peter comes in and he doesn't notice her at first. She's visiting with Aunt May and she says, Quick, someone call the beauty parlor. It's an emergency. A living, breathing male walked in and didn't notice me. I'm a washout. A has-been. It's the utter end, friend. (laughs) It's so over the top, but I can also see it being her because she's so theatrical and so fearless and self-confident. Just great stuff. Anyway, I really like her. And then in the Fantastic Four stories, I I was noticing I like the way he's drawn both uh, Sue and Crystal, and I think he draws his women pretty uh, pretty strong. Their body language is strong for the most part, except in cases where, you know, they get knocked unconscious or whatever. But in, in this um, issue, there's a, a whole story where um, Crystal collapses and um, Sue happens to be out shopping, <clears throat> so she's in her street clothes and she ends up having to save the day in her street clothes. And her street clothes are really normal. She's wearing, like, a green sort of pantsuit outfit and boots that don't have high heels. And she looks pretty normal. And she kind of, you know, does her superhero thing in her street clothes and and saves the day and is pretty powerful and, you know, doesn't look like a woman with her spine twisted or who can't handle these situations. So... It was weird to see it again and, and notice these sorts of things again um, after being exposed these days to so much of the awful female character in comics because there are so, so many of them. And, you know, art aside, they're just not written great. So I'm not saying that, that Sue was, a um, you know, the strongest female character ever, but I really like the way she, she works out in these particular stories. Now, the one other thing I noticed when I was looking through these... Um, which I hadn't ever thought about before, but I see it very clearly now. Um, Ramita took over from from Steve Ditko in 
the uh, Spider-Man book, and then he took over from Kirby in the Fantastic Four book. And to put now, the work was done roughly at the same time, you know, within a couple years. But what was really interesting was that you look at the Spider-Man stuff, and you can see how he adapted his own style to carry through some of the elements that Ditko had when he created Spider-Man and his look and the way he he acts. So there are scenes where Spider-Man is fighting the Green Goblin, and you can see in the way Ramita's drawn him leaping or twisting that he's kept that, that incredible fluidity that Ditko did so well, that almost otherworldly litheness that was so good for Spider-Man and so good for things like Doctor Strange as well. And it's it's just so neat to see him do that, but then bring his own style, which is very strong and solid, um, not blocky, but just a more solid style to that. And that's so cool. And then you look at the Fantastic Four stuff and you can see how he really built on Kirby style. And of course, some of the um, the Fantastic Fours that he did early on were actually laid out by Kirby, so he had that to work on. But you see in his penciling that he took Kirby poses and tweaked them a little bit to make them more his style. But you see the Kirby influence throughout in the way the characters are posed, the way they hold themselves, the way um, the fight scenes are sort of laid out, and that you know the Kirby movement that goes through the panels. I'm just looking at a page where uh, for complicated plot reasons, the Human Torch has to um, reverse his power and suck all the heat out of a room so he can freeze the thing so he doesn't die. And he does that, and uh, then he pops out the top of the Baxter building, and you see the top of the building covered in ice, and it's a kind of a long shot. And uh, so you see that, and then the next panel is a close-up on him uh, as he's flying, and he's sort of really long and really stretched out. It's that... um, really forced perspective thing. And then in the next shot, he's in outer space because he has to release all this heat. And it's a kind of a medium shot. And then in the last one, he's falling back again. And uh, it's kind of a tight shot on him, but you can't even tell what the background is supposed to be. It looks like a bunch of just um, pieces of graph paper that are all strewn around. And it's very abstract, but also... You know, being that it's got grids in it, it's sort of Kirby-like in that way. And then the way Ramita draws his special effects are definitely from the Kirby style with a lot of those, um, you know, bolts of energy and uh, the, the dots, the black dots that show the uh, the energy coming off of something. And, you know, he, he uses all of the, the Kirby tricks on machinery, making those jagged black streaks go down them to look really shiny. So I just think that's really interesting how he was able to adapt from two very, very different styles. I mean, I don't think you could find two more different styles of comic book art than Ditko and Kirby, kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. But he managed to work elements of that into his own work, at least in the beginning anyway, um, and, and then kind of made it his own, which I think is just extraordinary. So I'm so happy with this book. I'm just so very happy that I got it. And I can't wait to just read the stories a little more thoroughly and... It will probably inspire me to go back through my comics and pull out more of Ramita's stuff. So, yay for that. I'm really thrilled. So thanks, Tony. Thanks again for giving that to me. I really appreciate it. Um, So I wanted to keep that short. Um, I'm going to take another little break, and then I think we'll come back with uh, something else. This last segment is mostly something I recorded a couple weeks ago um, 
when I was trying to get through one of those Grant Morrison X-Men books. So I'm just going to drop that in and let you listen to me rant a little bit. Um, But I do want to say that I was really, really thrilled this past week because I got name-checked in the Polite Descent blog. And I was just so thrilled about that because I love to read Polite Descent. And the the topic that I contributed to was about um, psychic nosebleeds. So Scott, the guy who does Polite Descent, had noticed that um, in comics this is a very common uh, trope, theme, motif, what have you, whereby when somebody is exerting their psychic powers to the utmost, their nodes, noses will bleed. They will get a nosebleed. And there is no medical reason for this to happen, really. But it seems to be just shorthand for someone's really using their psychic powers. So he's he's put up a whole bunch of different um, scans showing where this happens in comics. And I had noticed while reading the Grant Morrison X-Men books that it's all over the place. There's nosebleeds left, right, and center. So I had written him about this and included a couple of scans, and he actually put them in his blog. And I thought that that was really neat. So that just made me happy all over. Um, okay, so now I'm going to... Um, move to the my pre-recorded section on X-Men, and then I'll come back at the end and uh, tell you about the music that's going to close the show. Different music from the fabulous Ginger Marison music that you usually hear. So, last time, in the last show, I talked a little bit about this X-Men trade, which is written by Grant Morrison, and this one is Assault on Weapon Plus, which is uh, number five in the new X-Men series. And I mentioned that I wanted to try to read it and understand it because Grant Morrison's supposed to be so great. And also because David Arroyo gave it to me. And I figured if he gave it to me, he wanted me to read it, right? That there was something good in it. So then he leaves this comment on my blog that says, Actually, I only gave you those X-Men trades because I really hated them. So instead of throwing them out, I figured you could get some comedy use out of them. <laughs> so here I am thinking that he really likes them and thinking... Am I missing the really good stuff in here? But it turns out, no, there really isn't any good stuff in here. So I talked about the scene last time. Well, okay, let me step back a bit. Um, So this is New X-Men, and uh, there's a plot here, and this kind of takes place uh, when Emma and Scott are having an affair, and Jean finds out about it, and then um, Emma supposedly gets killed, and... um, Bishop and Sage come to investigate, and then that plot gets resolved, and then it turns into a different plot about uh, Logan and Scott going to this satellite to find out about the Weapon X, or the, or the Weapon Plus um, plan, right? So two plots. So I, I talked last time about the, the scene that starts the second plot, where um, Scott goes to get drunk at the Hellfire Club, and how kind of laughable I found it. And, you know, it's funny, when I I was reading this again so I could review it, I realized why I thought this scene was so funny. And it's because the inside of this particular Hellfire Club looks almost exactly like this place in New Jersey called Arts Playpen, which was uh, a music-slash-strip club located on Route 9 in um, beautiful South Amboy, New Jersey. And we used to go there, my friends and I used to go there sometimes, because they had bands that we liked. But then on the weekends, they had strippers, and they had men on Friday night and women on Saturday night. And my best friend's cousin worked there on Saturday nights, and we had to go with her um, sort of as protection and to make sure people didn't steal her money and stuff. So um, anyway, that's enough about me. But (laughs) it, it just made me laugh to think that, you know, the Hellfire Club, head of the evil mutant organization that's planning to take over the world is actually centered at a skeevy New Jersey strip club. Because <laughs> I think that actually makes sense in some way. So yeah, Hellfire Club, Arts Playpen. And and I think the level of entertainment is about the same at both places. You know, um, Jersey girls who don't really know what they're doing when they're dressing up and doing what they think is really like, you know, this faux S&M erotic dance that has absolutely nothing to do with S&M. Anyway, um, so I just wanted to mention that. Um, so a couple other things I wanted to mention. The the first plot about Emma Frost getting killed annoyed me in the way, as I think I've mentioned before, that um, Voyager episodes always annoyed me. You know, of course she's not going to die. You know, she gets shot by a diamond bullet and she shatters into a bazillion pieces and then um, she gets put back together. Of course she's going to get put back together. Of course she's going to come back to life. There's no tension at all to find out if she's going to live or die. None. Zero. And even knowing that, 
the plot about who done it doesn't create any interest either because you know she's going to come back to life and when she does come back she'll probably be able to tell you who did it so it's more like why don't we just wait around until um somebody puts her back together because you know she's going to get put back together so that was just silly um this is the first time I'd seen these characters of Bishop and Sage and you know Bishop's kind of cool and I I like the cover where he has the Terminator thing happening. Um, Sage, I didn't really know anything about her, but I got to say, you know, when I'm investigating a murder and I got to go trekking around in the woods and the mud and the leaves and climbing up hills, five inch heels would not be my footwear of choice, no matter who you are. Five inch heels. Now, I looked at this picture. In fact, there's a close up of her foot. And in, in the scene where she's standing, she's kind of got one leg cocked and you can't see it. And then in the next scene, you actually see her booted foot. And it is a five-inch heel. It's really hard to walk in five-inch heels, even if you're used to it. And certainly not the kind of heels you want to be going tramping out. In fact, I'm wondering why her heel isn't actually sinking into the ground at that point. Just, you know, more stupidity. And, and there are a lot of tits in here. Just completely gratuitous tits all over the place. And... As always, I'm just wondering why they're there, because they don't make any sense. Um, one character that I do like in here is Barnell, also called Beaky, um, who ha- falls in love with Angel, the, the woman with the wings. Um, he's kind of an interesting mutant, because he's kind of ugly looking. Um, and he seems very, uh, not pure of heart, but sort of innocent in a way. And I think they had established that in other ones. Um, and, and I kind of like him. He's an interesting different non-devious character and it's refreshing to see that because in these particular um x-men everybody has secret agendas going on and you never really know who's lying and who's telling the truth that's another reason why i don't like to read them because i just can't be bothered to to try to figure out what everybody's motives are it's like i don't have time (laughs) to do it um and i and i gotta say in looking through this uh the, the female mutants, you know, of, of course, Barnell is, is the, I'll put quotes around this ugly one because he kind of looks like a bird. Um, and an angel, of course, has to be beautiful, even though in a non-traditional sort of way, um, because she's Hispanic or black. I can't really quite tell here. Um, but yeah, you know, she's got a great body and she's really got this amazing face and all that. So no unattractive female mutants. That's a rule. Can't have that. Even if they were, they get to be good looking over time. Now, the second plot line here this thing about finding out about Weapon Plus has a different artist, and I don't know enough about the artist to say who does which, but I think given the um, order that they've listed them on here in the front, that the first plot with Emma not getting killed was by Phil Jimenez, and the second one about Weapon Plus is by Chris Bacallo. And I really hate Chris Bacallo's art. I think it's very ugly. Um, For the people, I think he draws beautiful, beautiful buildings and machinery and... uh, you know, pointy stuff and space looks great, and his people are just fucking butt ugly, and I hate looking at them. Um, the, the whole going up to space, again, has that fake tension, because at the very end, um, Wolverine Logan here is going to blow up the space station with pretty much everyone on it, and, you know, is Wolverine really going to die in this explosion? Don't think so. So absolutely no tension there whatsoever to find out what's going to happen, so... Just, you know, I I guess this could be interesting, but, you know, the decompression here, too, gets me. Stuff goes on for pages and pages, and then when there is plot, it gets compressed into, like, five lines that I have a really hard time figuring out what's happening. So I I am not a fan of this type of storytelling, and I'm sure some people really like this, but it's totally not for me. Um, The other thing that kind of got me, I had to go to Wikipedia just to find out what happened because my curiosity was mildly aroused by this. And the first line of the Wikipedia entry for the next book, which is called Planet X, I had I stopped reading after that because it says, um, Zorn, who's one of the characters in here, revealed that he was Magneto in disguise and that he had worked to undermine the X-Men ever since joining them. <laughs> okay, whatever. You just lost me with that sentence. Just, No doesn't work for me and then there's this you know the long explanation of how this actually worked and how he betrayed them and blah 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 too fucking complicated i'm sorry i can't read these things anymore (sighs) so anyway um one more thing about emma frost did you know i didn't like her have i said that before um the, the thing i don't get about emma frost and granted i haven't followed her character forever because i 
don't like her enough to do that, is that um, she seems to me to be a character with very few redeeming qualities. Um, she's bitchy, and I mean that in a really bad sense. Um, she's spiteful, she lies, um, she takes advantage of people, she's morally ambiguous, that is, you never know whether she's fighting on the, the right side or the wrong side, and, um, and yet... She still hangs around, and yet men still fall in love with her. And the only reason, or they at least want to fuck her, the only reason I can figure it is because she's hot. So I think this goes along with something that we've seen in comic books. It's okay to be a morally reprehensible character if you're a woman, to really be awful as long as you're hot, because if you're hot, men will still want to fuck you, so that's okay. So if you're hot, you don't have to worry about having a good character. Just make sure you're hot and dress like a stripper. Um... And, you know, be beautiful, even if that means cosmetic surgery. So be hot at all costs. You must be hot. And then it's okay to be an evil character. Just as an example of this, this is her her way of seducing Scott Summers. You know, this is the way she talks to him. So all you're saying is that some mind monster put a lot of dirty thoughts in your head and you're embarrassed in case your telepathic wife sees what you're really thinking about her? Oh, Scott, how ordinary. Why can't you just give up your place on the Olympic suffering team and relax with some wine and adultery? Hey, those are good lines. Be condescending and awful. That's a way to get a man into bed with you. Oh, but you're hot, so that'll probably work. As long as you're hot, you can say things like that and be really awful. Just make sure you're hot. So, yeah, Emma Frost, don't don't understand her. And I know she's going to be around forever. And, you know, Wolverine comforts her, which I don't really get. I guess it's because she's hot and he has to try to comfort her. And she she says that she's fallen in love with Scott, which, you know, I don't believe for two seconds. But, um, yeah, so that's that's me and this X-Men. You know, I realize that I have the two other trades that came before this, which I, I will try to make myself read at some point. And one of them, because I have to talk about how awful the art is. Um, I think it might have been the Frank, Frank Quitely one, but um, the way he drew Emma Frost, not only a stripper, but a stripper who doesn't have any nipples and who insists on showing camel toe in every single pose that she's in, which really is just a little too porny for me in a comic book. And so, you know, I'm not going to throw this out, as David had suggested he might do, but I think I will put it up on Amazon and sell it for like a dollar just to get it out of my house because I really don't want it in the same room with me. Okay, so that wraps things up for this edition. I wanted to close by playing a song by this band that I'm obsessed with right now. And if you looked at the blog, you know who they are. They're called Flight of the Concords. And um, I forget how I really found out about them, but um, one half of Flight of the Concords is a guy named Brett McKenzie, who was in Lord of the Rings. And he played Fig with the Elf. Um, if you don't know who Figwood is, go on Wikipedia and look it up. And I knew about Figwood a long time ago, and I kind of sort of knew that Brent was... Brett, not Brent. Brett was in this band. He's also in a New Zealand reggae band called the Black Seeds. Um, and he, he's a funny guy, and his partner, um, Jermaine Clements, is also hilarious. If you go to YouTube, you can find uh, a whole bunch of videos. They were on HBO and did a one-night stand. Um, and I just find their their mix of really wonderful folk music and humor to be quite irresistible. So I wanted to play this song because it just cracks me up. Um, I'm a big David Bowie fan, and they they have this song that's called Bowie, and it's meant to be a, a let's use those words again a loving tribute and also a parody of the really outer spacey stuff that that Bowie was doing kind of early on in his career. The thing that amazes me is that both of them do Bowie voices really, really, really well. So you're listening to it and you're like, wow, it sounds just like David Bowie. Both of them. They both do different Bowie voices. So I think this song is really, really funny. And if you want to find out more about Flight of the Concords, um, go to YouTube, look at their videos, and um, they have a website. I'll put the link in for that. So um, please enjoy David Bowie in Outer Space. Doing out in space, man. Isn't it cold? Quite cold out there, Bowie. 
Do you need my jump up away? Does the space cold do funny things to your nipples, making them all pointy? Boeing. Do you use your pointy nipples as telescopic antenna, transmitting data back to Earth? I bet you do, you freaky old bastard, you. Is it lonely out there in space, man? Or is there life on Mars? Wouldn't that be weird because you wrote that song? Is there life on Mars? Well, you could write a follow-up tune and call it... Mm, there is. Mm, and there is. There is. The heaps of it. And it's all freaking out at my new look. Yeah. Mm. You have one really funky sequence spacesuit, Bowie. Or do you have several ch 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 changes? Strange changes. Do they smoke grass out there in space, man? Or do they smoke astrotype? Receiving transmission. <laughs> From David Bowie's nipple antennae Do you read me, Lieutenant Bowie? This is Bowie to Bowie Do you hear me out there, man? This is Bowie back to Bowie I read you loud and clear, man Oh yeah, man! Your signal is weak on my radar screen. How far out are you, man? I'm pretty far out. That's pretty far out, man. Gravitational pull. I'm jamming out with the McJaggernauts. And they think it's pretty cool, man. Okay, baby, what was that sound? I don't know, man, I'll have to turn my ship around. Oh, it's the craziest thing. Yeah, I'm picking it up on my LSD screen. Oh, but can you see the stratosphere ringing to the choir of Afronauts singing? I'm a mean and I said your face is on funky. I'm a mean and 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 I